but uh, I have lots of state licenses and I do telemedicine for it's vegan primary care. For folks who are vegan and plant-based and you want a plant-based doctor, I can see you run labs and, and uh, you know, be your primary care doctor, send referrals, et cetera. I'm in lots of states, currently 28 states. So if you see your state on the list, or if you are in an RV or something and you go to different states and you need a doctor while you're in one of these green states, just uh, contact me, Vegan Primary Care, and we'll get you taken care of. I accept insurance, Aetna, Cigna, TRICARE, and Medicare, uh, and I also have a cash pay service. Uh, one of the things that's kind of neat about my practice is it's a nutrition kind of focused practice. I'm a lifestyle medicine board certified doctor as well as family doctor. But on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, we do a, a weight loss, a free weight loss meeting called the Get to Your Goal Weight Loss Meeting, which is kind of fun. So we go over um, various uh, weight loss tips and hear each other's story. It's a lot of fun. Hey, but can, can anybody, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but can anybody join that? So because of uh, limited space or the ability of each person to have value, I just limit it to patients who, to my patients. So, I mean, so some of my patients have only been seen once and they've been doing it for like a year, but um, it allows me to at least to know them a little bit in case some sort of medical things happen in the, or come up during the visit. Thank you. Okay. Um, so today we're gonna talk about AI for wellness new AI tools for health and wellness. And the first thing we're gonna use AI for is to come up with a few vegan dad jokes. Okay, so the first vegan dad joke I thought we'd say is, these were developed by AI, not by Dr. Harrington, but I think they're kind of funny. Why did you go vegan? I thought my social life could use a challenge. That's <laughs> one. Oh my goodness. I'm in a stand-up comedy class. If AI will write my act for me, I could be saving a lot of time and money. Okay. Well, I mean, you could generate some ideas. It could get the juices flowing. Okay. So here's one. How many omnivores does it take to change a light bulb? I know the answer to that one, but go ahead. None. They'd rather stay in the dark about their where their food comes from. That's hilarious. All right. So there's more uh, uh, corny AI dad jokes where that came from, but I, I thought <laughs> I'm not going to bore you guys more with that, but uh, it, it can be kind of fun. Yeah. Hey, how many Jewish mothers does it take to, to, to change a light bulb? How many? Never mind. I'll just sit here in the dark. <laughs> I like it. I love it. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, here, here we go. So let's, Let's get this started. Okay, AI for health and wellness. Now, you may have heard stuff over the last several years about how AI is moving into radiology where images are being shown to computers and they're just showing them so many images that they're learning to be used alongside the doctor for things like mammograms and things where the computer will look at the image and try to point out the areas to assist the, the doctor. Um, there's even things where uh, for ophthalmologists, they look at the back of the eye, the retina, and feed it into the computer, and it can help to guide things. Or dermatologists showing um, images of melanoma to be predictive. And so these are things that are be used in industry, but also drug discovery, 
They're using artificial intelligence to determine protein folding, some very complex um, mathematical uh, equations and stuff to make these uh, predictions about the way protein folds. But now they've basically kind of used artificial intelligence to come up with models for, for thousands and thousands of proteins. So this will speed up drug, drug discovery. Home monitors, I believe the way, you know, the Apple Watch can detect um, atrial fibrillation. I believe some of that is related to artificial intelligence programming. Um, and then things like advanced prosthetics where the body kind of uh, can have an interface where nerves can communicate somewhat to prosthetics. This is something that's advancing and exciting uh, related to artificial intelligence. But the thing that took the world by storm uh, in terms of the user interface is this thing called ChatGPT. It's a chatbot, and it, it happened in late November of 2022, so just last year. And it's called Generative Pre-Training Transformer, GPT, whatever. But basically, it's it's generative, generative AI, where uh, it's it's a robot that makes up words. It kind of finishes, it's basically kind of trained to finish your sentences with what would make sense. Uh, but just that taking further and further and further. Uh, some people say it's like an all-knowing assistant who sometimes lies convincingly. So that's kind of one aspect, uh, sort of the danger aspect of it, or something that you should always be kind of wary about, is the fact that it can say stuff convincingly wrong. And, uh, and so you got to be wary of that. Um, next thing, it's been trained on large data sets. It's like it's read the internet or in the equivalent of 130 million books is sort of the example of ChatGPT 3.5. That was a, a, the least, the last level. Now it's at ChatGPT 4.0, which is probably even trained on more, I think. I'm not 100% sure. So what are some general use cases? So I just showed up with some uh, you know, corny dad jokes, but uh, you could do lots of things with this, uh, lots of creative things like you know, write stories, um, you know, professional writings like cover letters and things, you know, education. Tell me about you know, this topic or that topic. It's like you're Googling something or searching something on the internet, but you're having explained to you by uh, the robot. Uh, use it to brainstorm ideas. Give me five ideas about X, Y, or Z. Write a travel itinerary. You can say things like, I want to travel to Washington, D.C., it's me and my you know, family of four, and we're traveling, one of them is handicapped, and we want to, uh, which, which museums are handicapped accessible? Like you can get really granular and it will come up with an amazing itinerary for you. Um, learning languages, trying, trying to uh, use it to learn various languages is treating you like you have no knowledge, previous knowledge of the language and, and conversing with you to, to help, to, like a teacher, or summarize long articles or scientific papers and taking the confusing language and, and um, making it more readable, stuff like that. Uh, so this is just more of this explained, uh, written out. One of the things for creating stories, you can use it to help create character types and character lines of, of um, plot lines and very complex things, outlines of writing. And so the assumption is that fiction is gonna be happening at a higher rate because people will be using it as kind of a co-writer for them. 
Okay, so we talked about that. General use cases. So let's get right into some health cases. Well, if someone says, if someone has a rare disease or if someone has, uh, or if you get diagnosed with something or you think you might be, uh, have a disease, you can go on to one of these chatbots and have it explain uh, or teach you about the medical diagnosis that you're talking about or come up with lists of potential diagnoses based on your symptoms. Um, and so it can research and explain topics for you. Uh, dietary guidance, you can ask it for meal plans, create recipes, and we're going to show examples of that in this, in, this, um, in this presentation. Create fitness plans, so things like workout plans. You could say, you know, what your current weight is and what you, whether you're just starting out or expert. Uh, create lists of, of work, you know, what you want to focus on. It's all really kind of up to your own imagination what you will get out of it. Um, I thought the healthy habit things in terms of sleep hygiene and, and lists of rituals at night to try to help you sleep or guided meditation, talking, you know, scripts that you could you could do, mantras and things. It's it's really up to your imagination. So once again, this is just more an introduction into some like potentials that you could use it for. In terms of vegan interests, imagine being able to take a, I, now that I've been vegan for a while, you know, since 2012, I can look at a recipe and I can, oh, it just doesn't need, if, if it's not a vegan recipe, I can simply take this or that out of it. And, um, you know, I, I've got uh, good vegan ninja skills. But if you're just starting out and you want to take a recipe you could copy and paste, copy the recipe and paste it into ChatGPT and say, basically, veganize this recipe, uh, stuff like that, or make it whole food, plant-based, SOS-free, or oh, make it gluten-free, and uh, it, it will adjust it, and it's it's it'll take what it's already there and and uh, adjust it for you. You can take lists of uh, ingredient lists of weird long. Uh, ingredients in packaged foods. And you could say, which one of these are made from animal products or derived from animal products? And it'll, it'll, it'll do it for you. Um, ask it about environmental impacts of foods, which food you can compare foods, which food has a larger environmental impact and stuff like that. All right. Uh, are we still, are we still zooming here? Yeah. I just okay. don't see your slides anymore. Now I see your slides again. Yeah. All right. All right. Something, there was a pop-up on my screen or something. Okay. So one of the next things is exploring uh, ethical topics about veganism. You can learn, you can learn about local laws, about climate and um, animal rights. You could, uh, you know, have chat GPT walk you through uh, arguments related to veganism and thing, things you could you should know to kind of support support your um, knowledge of veganism and and the ethical aspects of it, uh, especially about clothing and testing on animals and various various vegan topics that you can you you know even if you don't feel very uh, like expert in this area you can quickly become smart in this area. Okay, so. ChatGPT is from this company called OpenAI, and 
Microsoft has a 49% stake in OpenAI, so they're using it, the ChatGPT, natively in their in their products like uh, Microsoft Word and this kind of thing. Um, so, but uh, you can go on on the web. You go on the web and you sign up for OpenAI and use ChatGPT. And there's a free version, ChatGPT 3.5. And the only downside to using the free one is that sometimes if there's a lot of traffic on there, it'll kind of freeze up or it won't it won't do it. So unfortunately, there is a paid version, it's, but it's only $20 a month and you won't get really freezing up and you get different um, um, pro aspects of it called plugins. And we'll talk more about that. Okay, so yeah, in ChatGPT, it also has an iOS app. Uh, it's this little white rose looking thing down at the bottom right. Um, so we're going to talk briefly about when you're talking to AI, when you're doing a Google search on Google, you know, you just, you start to learn what, uh, works in a Google search, but for a generative, a generative AI, you want to give it a prompt and it, it's very similar. It's just like talking to somebody, but in this, you can be very specific about what you want and you can give it a context, specific information you know, what, what you want specifically, give it the intent or the goal of your search and what, how do you want it to respond to you in bulleted lists, in a narrative, uh, like you're talking to someone or, you know, for like a PowerPoint, you can give it all sorts of options. And I boiled this down into the who, what, you know, like the, the question words, who, what, when, where, why, and how, but it's mostly who, what, why, and how. And so let's, Let's do an example. Let's use ChatGPT to do an example for uh, Italian vegan recipe. So I'll, I'll write on ChatGPT, I'll go on OpenAI's ChatGPT and say, I'm a beginner vegan cook. I want to cook vegan Italian food without salt, oil, or sugar. Can you give me a simple recipe that I can prepare quickly for my family of four? Provide me with a recipe and list format with short instructions. So here is the prompt, and then boom, certainly here's a simple healthy recipe for vegan Tuscan bean soup. That's what it came up with, vegan Tuscan bean soup. Okay, and it gives you the list. Here's the recipe. This was kind of random. I didn't ask it for Tuscan bean soup, but that's what it chose because I wasn't specific. I wasn't specific. If I asked for something different, it would give me something different, but... Okay, one large onion, zucchini, this and that, dried basil, blah, blah, blah. But it gives you the uh, all of the ingredients. So I noticed it put low sodium vegetable broth. So, but that's a, probably kind of a salt added kind of situation. So you have to check it. You have to check it because it, it can be wrong basically from what, what you ask it. So um, you have to be discerning. Okay, it gives you some instructions in a large soup pot. Add a little bit of water broth, saute the onions over medium heat till they become translucent. So it gives you great instructions. Okay, so that was coming up with a vegan Italian recipe for basically a beginner. Uh, didn't know anything about it and just whipped it right out, boom. So you can take this to a next level if you do for the paid level, uh, see there's GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 is a paid level and they have something called plugins and that the plugins will attach to other various web applications. And so for I'm highlighting this one called Instacart and 
Uh, I don't know if you've used Instacart or other food delivery services where you put in the food that you want and they, they deliver it to you. Um, and, and so it's, it's very convenient, super convenient. So I put in the same prompt, but this time I've used the uh, chat GPT plugins of Instacart. Put in the same one. And this time, instead of the Tuscan bean soup, because I didn't, I didn't mention it. It, it came up with uh, pasta primavera this time, and it it went and gave me the whole list of, and then it said, okay, here is an Instacart link. You know uh, what you're not seeing is above this was the same um, uh, recipe list and um, the ingredients list and the recipe instructions. And then there's the Instacart link. So then you click the Instacart link, and there you find yourself in Instacart with all of the uh, ingredients ready to be purchased. You just click, just buy, log in and, and buy the ingredients. So this is a pretty powerful thing, a, a time-saving tool. And I thought that it'd be great to highlight in this here. So, okay, so let's use it for weight loss plans. Okay, so I'm writing a real specific uh, prompt here. Okay, we've got, I'm 26 year old male. I weigh 162 pounds. I'm vegan. Eat a whole food plant-based diet with no salt, oil, or sugar added. I don't want smoothies, nuts, or nut butters. I'd like a breakfast, lunch, and a very light dinner. I want to lose five hundred five. Uh, want to lose weight. Calculate the portion sizes and calories based on a sedentary man. Give me a one-day meal plan. Provide a list. Boom. So actually, this one was a little bit off. It was a little bit off, bit off by a few, like 200 calories or something in the how, many, how much calories that I should eat uh, per day. So this is something that you should kind of be aware of. It's not 100% perfect, uh, but it's very close and helps get you, get you there. And uh, just for instance, it's estimating the breakfast of quinoa porridge with berries and some chia seed cinnamon, an apple for a mid-morning stack, lentil salad for lunch with uh, made with dressing of lemon juice, apple cider vinegar. Doesn't sound exactly that tasty, but. Uh, and, you know, it goes on and on, gives you a great, great uh, um, kind of meal plan for the day. And there's no thinking involved. You just, just come up with a good prompt. All right, Here, here's an example of an educational question. Okay, I, I'm vegan. I've heard about animal products can be harmful to your health. I'm interested specifically in the way that it increases atherosclerosis uh, or kidney problems and hypertension. Can you provide a list of ways that animal products are harmful? Provide bullet points. Okay, so then it's going through. Okay, there's saturated fat and cholesterol, high protein content. Put a strain on the kidneys, high sodium content. It's it's not vegan. It's just telling me what it knows from the internet, basically, and coming up with answers. Advanced glycation end products uh, from the high high protein, high fat foods uh, when they get heated, causing these AGEs, heme, iron, and it went on and on and on and on. It had like 10, 10 things. So this was just some quick examples of how they could be used uh, to your advantage uh, to speed things up for you. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. You can use it as a co-writer, the uh, artificial uh, assistant that is all-knowing assistant that sometimes lies. So, but 
one of the things I really want to focus is, is that, you know, the first time it may be slightly wrong. And so you can correct it or redirect it. You can, you can get more specific. Uh, you can ask follow-up questions like, uh-oh, I didn't mention that I was gluten-free. Can you take this recipe? I like this recipe you made, but make it gluten-free or add a different dressing. Um, and you can even ask it to fact check itself. How do you know this is true? Are you sure? What, you know, what, how, how do you know that this is true? So ChatGPT has um, the no search the internet mode and it has the access to the internet mode, the browsing mode. And so you have to pay for the access to the internet mode. The regular ChatGPT has searched the internet up to 2021. So in order to be able to access websites and do things like transcribe videos, summarize video tra um, transcripts and things, you have to use the paid version that has access. Um, so and they could do things like provide references and, and things like that. So we're almost done with this, uh, with this here, but I just wanted to go over two things. So, hey, I just told you that there's this amazing artificial intelligent um, assistant who sometimes lies and you wanna be able to sniff out when it's lying. So you wanna be able to fact check and what are some great resources for che fact, check fact checking uh, this artificial, this new great tool that we have. And so uh, we, we talked about how this is being brought into Google as in the form of something called BARD, uh, Bing in the native search and this chat GPT. But in order to find out if something's true, there are some really hard and fast um, good medical references. And those are things like Cochrane Reviews. Um, Uptodate.com is, is a paid uh, review article site. Unfortunately, it's paid, but most doctors are on up to date. Is the most doctors will pay for this because it has such a good review system, um, and these are where you know people uh, doctors have written review articles summarizing the um, evidence um, using health organizations like the American Academy of Family Physicians or the American Heart Association, things like that. When they put out guidelines, they're heavily reviewed, expert reviews of the edit evidence. Government organizations like CDC. WHO and the US Preventative Task Force for things like uh, the US Preventative Task Force is great for uh, providing guidance regarding preventative tests like colonoscopy or pap smears and, and things like that. Finally, I did want to mention, of course, we have YouTubes and you know nutrition tracks, nutritionfacts.org and Chef AJ and PCRM. But if you want to know it yourself, if you want to look it up from the source, from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak, you can go to Google Scholar or PubMed and you can search in a, you can search a topic and they'll come up with the actual reference articles about the topic. And it, it does start to get a little bit deeper, but if you really want to know from, from the source, that is where you would go in terms of the original articles and evidence. So lastly, lastly, uh, this is the last slide of stuff here is there is the hierarchy of evidence. I, when I show people this AI chatbot, I'm not suggesting they use the AI chatbots for life or death information. Um, what I'm recommending that they use this as an everyday tool to help speed things up for various things. But uh, when we're talking about life or death type situations and medical evidence, you want to have evidence at the very top here of this pyramid. Um, 
So at the top, you have clinical practice guidelines. You have that review all the studies and come up with the best evidence, best expert uh, review of the evidence. Meta-analyses are uh, reviewing multiple uh, randomized controlled studies and kind of boiling them down or, or, or putting them all together to come up with an answer. Randomized controlled trials are, are, are great, are great. Um, then there's these observational studies where they review a population and watch what happens to them. But there could be uh, other biases and stuff the farther down the, the pyramid that you go. So under that, we have case reports and then just, you know, um, laboratory studies. So you want to be taking your evidence as high, as high up the evidence-based hierarchy that you can. And so once again, this was about AI in, uh, in healthcare, uh, but I'm not suggesting that uh, you use this as um, you know, life or death stuff. I'm still recommending that you have doctors in your life, professionals in your life, dietitians and stuff like this, but this can be a great tool that you can use to speed up your everyday life. The takeaway from this is use AI tools to supercharge your health journey. As Dr. C. Everett Koop says, the best prescription is knowledge. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you to Chef AJ for letting me be here. I'm looking forward to answering some questions today and get a doctor who gets you. Once again, I'm in 28 states. I accept Aetna, Cigna, TRICARE, Medicare, as well as cash pay patients. And I am in 28 states and you can see me in person in the Tampa area. All right. All right, ready for a marathon Q&A session? Yes, yes, let me try to get to the stop here. How I, do I, I can? I know how to do it. I can do it on my end because I All have right. a button. You All got right. it. All, All right. right, let's do it. Okay, guys, as you know, if you're watching live, I do appreciate it because you can participate in the chat on YouTube. However, we can't take questions from the chat because there are just too many. So send them in to us. First one is from Amanda. How can we raise our vitamin A levels with plant foods, preferably unprocessed, when our body isn't converting from beta carotene? Well, I mean, I guess I'm kind of confused about that. I mean, this might come from the problematic aspect of testing vitamin A. Um, so as far as I know, I don't think a lot of nutritional, um, here's one of the problems with a lot of the nutritional tests is the, I don't know if you remember me talking about blood sugar versus the hemoglobin A1C. The hemoglobin A1C is this long-term test, a 90-day test based on the, um, the hemoglobin inside each blood cell. And it's a 90-day average is the, the blood cell lives 90 to 120 days. The more the hemoglobin gets affected by the blood sugar, it, it starts to change. And so why am I talking about hemoglobin A1C? Is that because it's a great test. It's a great test. It's a long-term test where the blood sugar kind of goes up and down. And so you expect vitamin A levels to kind of go up and down depending on what you're eating and your absorption and how this could change throughout throughout time. Now, I know it is a an oil-soluble um, uh, vitamin, but it, it's really the testing. So I'm not sure how you're knowing that your, your vitamin A level is, is, or your vitamin A is low or that you're poorly absorbing or you're poorly um, converting. Uh, so, when people have a nutritional question about a specific vitamin, 
first, I want to make sure that they're consuming enough, and I recommend people use the chronometer. It's a great tool, the chronometer. Um, you can put in all the foods, and you can find out exactly how much you're consuming. And um, this, as, as far as I know, this is very rare in 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 um, in Western Western world. We, we, you know, when you're not starving or you're not having um, malabsorption syndromes. So. If you are having malabsorption syndromes and things like this, where you're having chronic diarrhea and bloating and stuff like this, then you know I would refer people to gastroenterologists to try to figure out um, malabsorption issues. But you know that that's kind of how I'd handle. It. I want to make sure that we're really truly talking about the truth, and then make sure you're maximizing your absorption and finding that you're actually taking in enough. Great, thanks. Well, here's another question about. Uh carrot type stuff from Marianne who submitted it, but is also watching live. Is keratinemia something to worry about the orange suntan color you get from eating vegetables? No, keratinemia is not something to worry about. Uh, it, it, keratinemia can be kind of a little bit shocking for a provider because a patient walks in and they've just got this orange glow and uh, you, you're worried that the patient has jaundice, uh, but they won't have um, they, they won't have like scleral icterus. They won't have this kind of, Jonathan, when you look it up, you can see that their um, beta carotene is elevated, but it, it doesn't, um, it's non-toxic. It doesn't, uh, if you're getting it from your food it is generally non-toxic. So yeah, you don't have to worry about it. Thank you. This is from Judy. And she, the question is how to prepare for a SIBO test. She's 69, underweight, a whole food plant-based vegan, two years, mostly SOS free. Uh, the doctor ordered a breath test and a Nutra Aval FMV amino acid and nutrient and toxic elemental panel from Genova Labs for chronic varying IBS and symptoms, you need to get a consult with Dr. Harrington. This is really long. I would like your comments on how to prepare because she was told to eat only white rice, white bread, steamed chicken, meat broths, and uh, that steamed tofu is permitted, but not vegetable broth. I never heard of that. I've had a lot of SIBO breath tests. I never had to do anything about my diet. And stopping all supplements for seven days prior, including B12. So any ideas on how to prepare for a breath test? Well, I don't, I don't end up ordering the breath test. So I might not be the best person to ask about how to prepare for one. Um, I do know that some, there are some supplements that can, biotin is a big one for messing up some blood tests, but I'm not, I'm not sure about the breath test. The, the, the thing I worry about with the, the SIBO uh, testing and evaluation and kind of going down the SIBO route is the idea of treatment might be if they determine that you're positive for SIBO, then the treatment might be some pretty heavy duty, pretty expensive antibiotics, um, pretty prolonged uh, antibiotics in, to try to uh, really tamp down bacterial loads, uh, what it, which is in the small intestines, which it shouldn't be really in the small intestine. And so I would, I, I tend to focus on trying to have my patients who have SIBO-like symptoms to kind of slowly increase their fiber content. Uh, and, and even through things like fiber supplements, um, you know, slowly increasing beans and the whole grains so that, I mean, just, you're basically trying to push things along. Uh, and so it, it can be problematic because they, folks with SIBO can be very sensitive 
to um, to high fiber high fiber diets. But um, the goal is to kind of get them moving, get them get them things moving forward uh, to increase the fiber and this kind of thing. So I'm sorry, I'm not uh, not the best to answer about the the breath test pre pre uh, breath test uh, preparation. I didn't even know there was one. Like I said, I've had SIBO yeah. several times in my life and they never gave me a, and I went to like the best place and one of the best places, the, the motility clinic at Cedar sinai you just, they just do it. They never told me there was a prep for it. So that's yeah. interesting. Maybe she needs like a GI consult. There are some plant-based doctors like Dr. Vanessa Mendez that can do GI consults in different states, like yeah. not all states, but some states. Yeah. Okay. She's down, she's down in Miami, uh, the, uh, Mendez or the and I think she's also certified like in Indiana for some reason. I think she has a few. And then there's Dr. Serena Pesricha. There's there's quite a few right, right, right. GI doctors. So depending on where she lives, she might be able to find one. Okay, this is from Trisha. I have two small lumps, five inches apart under the skin of my inner upper thigh that has been there for a few years. How do I know if this is a varicose vein or something else? I had bike shorts on the other day where the elastic made it protrude and it felt a little sore, but otherwise it doesn't bother me. Should I be worried? Maybe a dermatologist, maybe? Yeah, maybe. so there, there are a couple of um, sort of lumps and bumps things that, that uh, primary care folks deal with. Uh, varicose veins, if it's a varicose vein, it shouldn't be a solid lump or bump. Um, you know, it should be easily compressible and have sort of a purple appearance uh, or, uh, you know, th that uh, it could be easily sort of um, tamped down and then you release and you'd see it fill back up, uh, that kind of thing. So it, you should be able to determine whether it's a vascular kind of um, uh, lump. But in terms of non-vascular lumps, subcutaneous lumps, something that's inside the fat tissue that kind of moves around, uh, some standard ones are something called a lipoma, which is a fatty tumor, but it's a benign tumor. And it will just, they're very slow growing and they're a little bit different texture than the uh, surrounding tissue, a little more dense. And unfortunately it's a cosmetic problem, but unfortunately if you want it removed, you kind of trade it for a scar. And, uh, and but if it's kind of slightly mobile, non-tender, and we're not worried that it's a lymph node uh, which is a little more deep, um, then you can just kind of leave them there and maybe get an evaluation at your next routine visit. Now there's another one, who, uh, another one called the epidermal inclusion cyst. And this is, it sometimes will have a pore, almost like a giant blackhead. And, or sometimes it will have drained or popped and got real red and irritated these cysts. There's someone who's famous on the internet about these cysts called Dr. Pimple Popper. And she'll, be expressing these cysts and they look like giants, like the, the biggest blackhead you've ever seen and that kind of thing. And, but they too need to be removed by surgery, but they're kind of cosmetic problems. So if it's in between the thighs, like that, if it's rubbing or if it's causing an irritation, you may want to have it, have it removed basically. But they're, they're benign in general. Thank you. All right. This is from, this is a very broad question from Victoria. Could Dr. Harrington address the best way to care for our memory when eating a whole food plant-based plant way of living? Okay, great, great, great. You know, I know there's the, the Scherz eyes uh, and as neurologists, they, this is kind of their um, wheelhouse. However, you know, just kind of hearing everybody's 
opinion about this, all the, what I call the vegan royalty doctors, you know, all the, the folks who are on the circuit. I kind of think about Alzheimer's and vast, you know, uh, health of the brain as a vascular issue, uh, whether it's Alzheimer's disease, whether it's, you know, vascular dementia or things like um, the, these kind of things, if, if we really want to have best brain health, we want to have the best vascular health. And so it's all the risk factors for vascular health, like um, cholesterol, smoking, blood pressure, um, a sedentary lifestyle, high blood sugar, diabetes, stuff like that. All these things you want to manage. Uh, but it seems like one of the biggest things for longevity and keeping your mind uh, right as you age is exercise, staying very active. Uh, and so this is one of the biggest things that I try to have people, uh, make sure they're staying active and engaged as they get older, um, trying to find things that they enjoy, like, you know, dancing, like Zumba and, you know, walking, stuff like that. Uh, the, it inevitably comes up the idea of omega-3 supplementation. And this one is kind of a hot button. And, you know, I might be sort of changing my views on this. I'm not 100% sure yet, but uh, kind of the, the hope is that we could get everything from the whole food. And the idea is, you know, other than like B12, okay, uh, you know, you could technically get vitamin D from the sun. And so should we really be supplementing, trying to get omega-3s from things like flax and chia and hemp? And so there's, there are folks who recommend taking, they will never be able to get your omega-3s up at a high enough level unless you are supplementing with algae-based omega-3s. And I am, you know, so from seeing with my patients and testing them and folks who are taking this, I am seeing this where this overall, the omega index tends to be kind of low uh, unless people supplement. And so I haven't started supplementing myself, but I technically, I'm, I'm pretty low in omega-3s and I'm, you know, you waiting for the latest... I'm curious. I, I, you probably wouldn't have time to watch it right now, but uh, Veg Source just did a really interesting video on it, and I'd like to send it to you and get your opinion on it. Maybe you can talk about it at another time about how this the was done. This is the, the video about uh, Veg Source kind of rebutting Dr. Clapper's. Uh, yeah, I mean, because yeah. he did quote some pretty interesting science about the the article and the research that was done to make the supplement a supplement. So I'd love to get your take on it. Did you see that video? It just came out either today or yesterday. Well, I haven't seen the one that came out today or yesterday, but he did one, you know, you know, when, when, when Dr. Clapper came out with his worries that, you know, uh, about, you know, his, his, his omegas are pretty low and they keep getting lower and he's thinking he's probably supplement, but he, he hasn't come out and said he's what's what he's supplementing with or anything yet. But the concept is the difference between observational studies and the interventional studies. And this, it, you know, Dr. McDougall talks about, and Dr. Uh, um, T. Colin Campbell talk about the concerns that we have about when you try to do these interventional studies with these single nutrients, you end up creating a monster a lot of times. It's like the beta carotene trial with smokers uh, ended up observationally, beta carotene, folks with high beta carotene levels had good outcomes and less cancer. So you put people on a, who have high risk for cancer on beta carotene to try to prevent it. And it caused worse outcomes, caused more cancer. So, wow, what do we do with this omega-3s? We know that people who have high omega-3 levels have less, you know, heart disease and less preterm delivery and less um, uh, cognitive decline. But some of the, some of the, some of the, uh, 
the tests are kind of murky and kind of gray. And so, but the interventional studies have mostly not panned out. And so we're kind of in this gray area right now. So I would love to see that uh, veg source because I, I really respect that uh, doctor. Um, okay. Well, he yeah. actually, it's not a doctor that does it. It's, it's Jeff Nelson. However, he does really research this. So I'm going to send it to you. And okay. Side. It's just because, you know, there's other doctors that come on. That's why I don't like to ever put doctor against doctor, but then we have yeah. other come on like Dr. McDougall that are, that are really like against the supplements. So I think it makes a lot of people confused and they don't know what to do. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things, you know, they taste terrible though. I mean, I remember oh. a long time ago and it tasted like I was burping up fish all day. Oh, right. Yeah. So I, I don't love the taste of them. So if I can get mine where they're supposed to be just by eating lots of greens and things, I'll keep doing that. I'm actually going to be getting mine tested uh, soon. I'll let you know. Okay, okay. So this is from Carol. She says that she's 53 and has been vegan for the past three years, mainly did it first to lose weight and it worked. Now as part of her healthy lifestyle, she waits, weight trains five to six times a week, works full time with children as an educator in daycare and has her own kids and family. She takes plenty of supplements, but I'm tired more often than not and always feel sore even though I do stretch. I wake up at five every day and go to sleep around 10, 1030 max. Could this fatigue be associated with my perimenopause or with not getting enough protein or is it simply my schedule? Maybe she should change her schedule and then see if I'm tired. Yeah, do the easy thing first. Oh man, I mean- I, I would have to like kind of see some of the list of the things she mentions, uh, you know, there are of course hormonal changes with menopause and people, people feel differently. Uh, but one of those things that's, you know, I, people go through menopause and it's like, you know, you, you have to go through it. And, and so um, I would try to uh, talk more about things that you could control necessarily, because ideally you wouldn't want to have people to take oral, oral sterile, uh, oral hormones um, in general. Uh, but, uh, so think about things you can control. Like the biggest one for fatigue is sleep. Oh man, we're all in the modern world. We're just not getting very much sleep and, uh, we're all, you know, staying up at night, watching our phones, you know, just basically falling asleep once we're completely exhausted after watching this blue light and keeping ourselves up at night. And then we're waking up to an alarm. So sleep is the number one. And then along with sleep is the idea of obstructive sleep apnea. Super common, super common. Millions of Americans have it. I always use the analogy of in James Bond when they hold people underwater and then they pick them up and say, who do you work for? And they, they gasp and they go back underwater. So you imagine the stress that people are under if, if they're snoring at night and not breathing. So that's called sleep apnea. So if you're not getting good sleep, if you wake up in the morning with potential sleep apnea symptoms like sore throat and fatigue and sweating, um, then you can evaluate that and, and get treated for that. Uh, um, the, the next thing is honestly, chronic fatigue. One of the big things for chronic fatigue is depression, believe it or not. And it makes, it makes you sound like, um, like you're out to get a patient or you're just ready to dismiss them by, by suggesting depression. But I, I don't mean that to try to put people on pills, but what I mean is the idea of in a modern world, we're kind of spinning our wheels and we're, we are, um, you know, we might be in sort of financial stress. We might be having stress that we can't control or a boss that is very um, dogmatic or, you know, domineering. 
and and we could just be seriously depressed. And uh, I can I can make anybody depressed. Basically, what I'm saying with the take away their purpose, take away their autonomy, take away you know the the mastery that they're you know they're always out of control. I can make anybody depressed and it, it makes them fatigued. So that is one of the things that uh, the mastery autonomy purpose is something that we go through uh, when, when we're dealing with fatigue to, to see if there's ways that can get people excited about life, basically. Yep. Well, thank you. Is that something you teach to your patients? Yes. I love the mastery autonomy purpose thing because when you, when you review things like that, uh, it gives you a different perspective. I think that was an economics principle where they were trying to find out what motivates people. And uh, it, it kind of, in my mind, relates to depression because a lot of times people, I, as a family doctor, I'm always, I'm always convincing people, oh, that's normal. Oh, that's normal. You know, oh, chronic fatigue. Oh, that's normal. You live in the modern world. You've got like a million responsibilities. You've got soul crushing debt. You've got like kids to take care of and no time, no sleep. I mean, no wonder you're depressed. You know, I mean, I, so I'm always trying, trying to figure out what the normal, like, so people don't think that they're crazy or they don't, that they don't, um, uh, that they know that other people are going through the same thing. It kind of helps them deal with it a little bit. Well, thank you. This is from Giselle. How do you distinguish the cause of underweight, including malabsorption versus not getting enough calories? Well, uh, simply with related to the GI tolerance of their food uh, and restricting behaviors, uh, I you know most people come to uh, doctors because they're overweight because that's a more common problem in in our society. It's more problem. But folks who've been doing the vegan thing for a long time, uh, one you know you've got the benefit of age and you're wiser, and I say your vegan ninja skills are getting stronger and stronger. And so I will have a few of my patients who have basically been doing it for a long time that they avoid all garbagey junk and they're, they're getting, their weight is actually getting kind of low. Uh, we, we follow BMI, BMI 18.5 or less tends to be problematic because when, if you happen to lose one more pound, the body has to make a decision, you know, hmm, should I get rid of this muscle cell or this heart cell or this liver cell or this bone cell? Um, you have higher risk for osteoporosis and frailty. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to recommend my patients who are closer to this 18.5 BMI, try to push, try to push closer to the BMI, BMI 20. It's a good round number just so that if you ever get sick, you're in the hospital, you can't eat for a day or two, you're not pushing yourself under into this anorexic or underweight level. So if you happen to be this way and you don't have significant GI distress or obvious um, malabsorption, uh, which causes diarrhea, this kind of thing, then um, you may actually have to increase the calorie density of your food. One of the big problems is as you start to get lower weight, your um, your appetite drive goes down and, and uh, that can be very difficult, very difficult trying to force yourself to eat. Uh, and, and so you, we, we look for tips and tricks on how you can increase the calorie density. It's sort of the reverse um, recommendations from when, you, when you're telling people to lose weight, um, increase the calorie density, increase meals more frequently, have liquid meals, have your meals later on during the day, 
that kind of thing. Those are those are some tips and tricks to try to get people to gain a, into a, a less at risk BMI is more like twenty. Perfect. Carolyn, who's watching live, says, I'm so happy to be working with Dr. Harrington as my doctor. He's so knowledgeable, kind, and has a great sense of humor. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and he has nice hair. Okay. Right. Very important in your doctor, right? Oh. Woo. <laughs> Just All right. So this is from, hmm, not seeing who this one is from, but um, we will ask it anyway. So it's a good question. We hear about this a lot. How valid are the claims that oxalates are a previously ignored but frequent cause of many health problems, not just calcium oxalate kidney stones, especially when the claim is made that it is very difficult to determine the oxalate contents of most food, except for animal-based foods that have no oxalates? Hmm. I know that oxalate, I, I mean, I basically... I don't know the answer to the question in terms of, uh, I haven't heard uh, other damaging aspects of oxalates other than the uh, oxalate kidney stones, like calcium oxalate stones. I think they and, mean like in vegetables, like you shouldn't, like, I don't know, certain people, maybe if they're on, th I've heard like thyroid medication, they shouldn't eat foods that are high in oxalates. Well, uh, so, I mean, the, the concern is that beets, beet greens, uh, Swiss chard and spinach are high in oxalates. I mean, like really high compared to all the uh, everything else in the vegetable family. But meanwhile, we're telling people to eat a pound of greens a day. And so if you focus only on, uh, say, spinach, which is a highly palatable green, you know, it's nice and soft and relatively mellow flavor that you'll be getting a lot of oxalates. And in theory, this level of oxalates can cause you to have uh, calcium oxalate stones. And so um, none of my patients have come down with calcium oxalate stones related to, um, related to this. So this could be more of a theoretical concern, um, but uh, it's definitely by the numbers, you're, you're, you're really going high on oxalates. So the only other thing that I've heard is that some people are concerned about oxalates in regards to joint pain, but I haven't, haven't seen that as um, practically actually being a concern. Uh, and so, uh, you know, some of my patients have opted to try to avoid oxalates because they happen to have various, you know, joint pains or rheumatoid-like issues. Um, but I, I haven't so far seen it in practical, um, uh, in practical everyday use as, as a problem. Thanks. From Amanda. How does one assemble a care team of doctor specialists to work with their primary care provider? I've had different specialists say they work with other care providers, but I'm not sure how to assemble everyone to work together with me. So, hey, that's a great question. And that is one of the um, beauties of being a part of a giant group. You know, most medical, the forces of medical economics kind of push doctors to kind of get into groups or be hired by these large groups. And, and so chances are, if you just go see a random doctor, they'll be a part of a group. And if they are a part of a group, they'll probably be on the same electronic medical record. And so there's not a lot of having to transfer records and this kind of thing. So I happen to be a sole practitioner, a solo practitioner. So you know, this sounds like I'm talking against myself here, but um, in terms of your question, if you are involved in a serious medical condition like cancer or something, 
uh, or rare, rare, rare disease that other doctors don't understand, it is good to be a part of a specialty team. And so she's absolutely right. Uh, but um, yeah, you, so you might want to go to like one of these big groups like Mayo Clinic or uh, in, in your town, if you have um, sort of a hospitalist based system that uh, ha has lots of, that has primary care doctors as well as specialists, which is super common these days. Thank you. This is from Danny. I have a rotator cuff tear. I have rotator cuff tears, three, and I'll be having surgery to repair the tears. I'm 66, young man with an active lifestyle. I've been whole food plant-based for two and a half years. Any suggestion to keep inflammation, bruising, swelling to a minimum? What about some extra vitamins like C, B12, ED, zinc, B complex? Any tips would be appreciated. This would be a good question in general for anybody going into any surgery, maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's no uh, additional nutritional things. I wouldn't try to over supplement uh, leading up to your surgery. Uh, definitely, I definitely wouldn't do that. Um, just normal whole food other than, you know, B12. And uh, if you're not getting sunlight, vitamin D. But um, in terms of after the surgery, there is, um, I might my, my have opinions about trying to get things mobilized uh, early. Uh, you, you know, you want to follow the surgeon's recommendations to a T, but uh, with soldier, with shoulder, I believe a lot of problems can be frozen shoulder after uh, after you have your procedure in terms of, um, their anti-inflammatories, I tend to tell people to avoid NSAIDs, which is the standard anti-inflammatory medication because of how it can irritate the GI tract. There's questions about kind of leaky gut situations or kidney problems, GI bleeding problems. And uh, so you honestly worry a little bit too about healing times. So I would avoid, avoid this. Now, some of the post-surgical uh, treatments might be things like ice and, and this kind of cold treatments. There are these amazing uh, tools where they have this kind of ice chest with a little pump and they'll pump the ice cold water onto the uh, sort of pad. Those things are really nice and various um, uh, uh, devices that will kind of put pressure kind of in the area to avoid large swelling, those kind of things. That, that's kind of how I would recommend mechanically, but nutritionally, I wouldn't recommend overdosing on any kind of supplement. Now, in terms of post, after you've kind of gone out of the initial surgery, um, if you're dealing with pain and uh, uh, while you're doing like physical therapy and stuff like this, you can utilize turmeric uh, with pepperine, turmeric with pepperine to as a as sort of a natural anti-inflammatory and it's becoming more standard nowadays, uh, turmeric instead of using NSAIDs. Ah, cool. Thank you. This is from Marianne. How do we make sure we don't become anemic on a plant-based diet? I, I didn't realize plant-based diets caused anemia. No, plant-based diets don't cause anemia. And there are some protective factors about plant-based diets in terms of if you're eating a low fat diet and a high fiber diet, um, if you're premenopausal and you have high estrogen levels, you can actually decrease your estrogen levels uh, through high fiber and low fat because of loss to the GI tract. Uh, and what do those decreased estrogen levels do? Well, they make it so that your periods are not as strong, not as heavy. 
because uh, estrogen being the fertilizer that kind of grows the endometrium. So being on a vegan diet actually can help you retain some of the iron by having a lower, um, a less robust menstrual period. So there's honestly, there's testing and you can test your ferritin level. I know I was, you know, I was here at Chef AJ and I was saying, well, you know, I don't care how much, how low your ferritin level is, as long as you're not anemic. And I think I might've been a little bit, you know, a little bit overzealous on this. If your ferritin is really low, like in the teens or under 10, you can supplement with some, you know, plant-based iron supplements and you might feel a little better. You might have a little less hair loss or stronger nails or this, this kind of thing. But um, it's something you can simply monitor when you get routine tests. So you don't have to worry that being on a vegan diet is going to make you anemic. In fact, it might make you better. Uh, you can watch out for your tea consumption. Uh, tea we can blind, bind with iron. So if you do drink tea, don't do it outside of the, eating it with food. Uh, vitamin C and iron in the food helps it be absorbed. So those are some tricks that you can watch out for, but you get plenty of iron and greens and beans and grains uh, and you know seeds and things, pumpkin seeds that uh, you don't have to worry about it. If you ever do the chronometer, you'll see that your iron is like 200%, stuff like that. Thank you. Uh, this is from Louise. Do you have any uh, experience in treating people with long COVID? She's asking for her 75-year-old sister who's not plant-based and has been to an ENT neurologist and vestibular doc without help. She's on a low dose of blood pressure medication and anxiety medication. She has lingering ears feeling always blocked. This is mm. a long COVID symptom. Well, I, I, I don't consider myself the long COVID expert. You know, I don't, I don't have a bunch of patients coming to see me for this issue. So I'm not, I'm not the expert in this thing, but I have a lot of patients who've had COVID and now have long COVID symptoms. And with this, we're just trying to, it's almost like treating someone with chronic fatigue syndrome or um, almost like fibromyalgia in a way where uh, you're trying to get them to be as active as possible without causing worse um, symptoms um, and uh, maximizing their nutrition, maximizing their sleep. So if people had vestibular symptoms, I, of course, I'd be forced to have you see the specialist to try to evaluate it, uh, vestibular specialist, whether it's ENT doctor or neurologist. And so, yeah, I wish I had better advice for you. Uh, but, you know, as a family doctor, I'm sort of the, a jack of all trades, but uh, I'm not uh, opposed to having lots of specialists on the team if we need it. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so with uh, the long, long COVID, most of my patients with long COVID have respiratory complaints and uh, we're trying to maximize their uh, function and treat, treat uh, restriction, treat asthma, and then their fatigue complaints and trying to get them out and about as best, best they can, kind of like a physical therapy model almost. You know, I mean, you mentioned that they're not plant-based, but Dr. Goldhammer, who's going to be on the show tomorrow, has helped lots of people with water fasting with long COVID. That seems like a totally reasonable option, uh, especially if you're overweight. With, with, if you don't have a lot to lose with fasting, you know, I kind of worry a little bit about that. But if you have a reasonable, if you have some fat stores, that I, I totally recommend. I, some of my patients are there right now. 
you're kidding. Have you ever fasted? You know, I'm going to be going to True North in September just for a little vacay. And because I haven't had a, a day off since March 19th, 2020. And so I'm going to actually pre-record the shows there. And Goldhammer wants me to fast just because he thinks everybody should, you know, just for, you know, like health, longevity, you know, for other reasons. But it sounds terrible. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I, I fasted for five days, did a five day water fast. Uh, and, uh, just because I know it really, it low, it's like can cure blood pressure temporarily, you know, uh, and it can it have amazing things with inflammation. And I, people who are, um, have rheumatoid disease, I say they're inflamed. Their, their immune system is on fire kind of. And that when you, when you go on a water fast, it's like dousing it with water and the, and the inflammation totally goes away. And then we start eating, it starts coming back. And so I wanted to experience this for myself to kind of put my money where my mouth is type of thing. So I did a five day water fast and, um, and I would, I was basically energetic through mentally energetic through the whole thing. Did you, did you work during it even? Yes, I did. I That's did. crazy because Dr. Goldhammer says you're supposed to be a complete rest. Was it was it very difficult? Well, yeah. So the, the problem is if you do uh, anaerobic activity, anaerobic where your the muscles have stored glycogen. And if you know, normally when you're doing some sort of anaerobic, you know, you're like bench pressing or something, you get to like 10 reps and um uh, you know, I, I, I got to get my hearing check. I thought you said anal aerobic and I'm like, <laughs> not anal aerobic, not <laughs> anal aerobic. Definitely not. I thought we're talking about working out with weights. <laughs> so, but the concept is that there's sugar stored in the muscles, but when you're fasting in a ketogenic state, I mean, it, it goes down a lot so that you really, you don't get those 10 reps. You really only get like one or two reps before you feel kind of that exhaustion again, but mentally uh, you can walk around and do like sub threshold, you know, walking anaerobic, uh, uh, aerobic, light aerobic, but I, I'm not recommending exercising on uh, a fast, but what I'm just suggesting is that you feel exhausted faster from activity. Uh, so you should be taking it easy and, and you allow it to be almost like a spiritual experience and, uh, and a healing experience in a low stress environment. And so, yeah, that, that would be way better. But um, because I was doing telemedicine, I was you know, working and uh, just in the comfort of my own home. Uh, but yeah, it was ideally you'd be in the, in the, in that true North setting. I want to go too. I, wanna, I wish I could go with you, chef AJ. Come with me. <laughs> we could be roomies. <laughs> when are you going? I'm going September 18th, Monday, right after my big conference on the 17th with my husband and little Bailey. Come on, do it. Oh Let's man. Do it. Come on. That would just be fun. Do it. It'd be so fun. I mean, and then we could fast together. I don't know for sure if I'm going to do it because I had a hard time when I went there like 12 years ago when I was 60 pounds heavier, even doing juice. We'll see. Anyway, never say never, right? Maybe I'll love it. I'm concerned because I do have a history of anorexia. It's like many years ago, but still, uh -huh. like I don't want to get into that. Like, you know, like, oh, this is great. Not eating. You know, I don't want to get I don't want to do that. So anyway, I got better doctors now, so we're good. So yeah. this is from Jean, and she says that she's an 80-year-old with painful vertebral compression fractures and kyphosis from severe osteoporosis, but no serious evidence of heart disease. What should I do? What should I be focusing on to maintain my remaining independence in addition to an SOS-free, I guess she means diet, to reduce the risk of future heart disease and dementia? Okay. Well, this, you know, I have patients who have uh, wedge compression fractures and really, I mean, 
I have some patients who are frail and have uh, very low bone mineral density and have had spontaneous fractures and, and this kind of thing. And uh, um, when, it, when it gets really bad like this, uh, there, there's a, if the question is about like osteoporosis and osteoporosis management, that's one thing. Um, if, uh, if, the, if the question is, how do I maintain general health and longevity? Uh, that's, that's another thing, because let's answer the longevity uh, question first. Being physically active and, and even a low level, if it's like walking and if it's gardening and doing things that you enjoy that keep you physically active are going to keep your brain healthy. Uh, remember, it's all about vascular health. So you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, SOS free. You don't have blood pressure problems. You don't have problems with uh, smoking or diabetes, these kind of things that cause vascular damage, then you're doing the best you can. And so then you're maintaining your um, health span with, by staying active uh, physically. Uh, now, if you're having a deteriorating spine, despite doing all these uh, things, there are some tips that people do, like they can wear weighted vests. Um, sometimes I'll have send people to the betterbones.com uh, website. That's one of the things that Dr. Clapper recommends people check out where they have, you know, they recommend kind of various activities and weight bearing um, vests and things, exercises. But if people are have, having what they call pathologic fractures, this is like a fracture just from doing yoga or walking on the stairs, you know, you haven't had a trauma, you're having pathologic fractures, multiple path pathologic fractures, then I'm recommending people actually kind of go aggressive with medical therapy because there are anabolic bone treatments nowadays. I'm not necessarily talking about bisphosphonates. So a lot of my patients are concerned and scared about bisphosphonates, but um, the, the, they now have anabolic therapies. And some of my patients are very scared to do therapies, but at the same time, the, if they've had multiple pathologic fractures, then the actual, the bone health becomes more important than the, I mean, like more primary than the uh, cardiovascular health because a, a hip fracture or something could take them out. So um, the risk benefit analysis in my mind re regarding that is, is, to, is to err on the side of trying to do an anabolic bone um, treatment. Never heard of that, very interesting. Well, think, I mean, there are medicines like Forteo and uh, there, there are medicines designed for osteoporosis that are outside of, that are more, that are more uh, modern than the bisphosphonates. Okay. I think, I think the hard part about medical school is the words you guys have all the medicines. <laughs> I mean, it's like a whole, that's, that's just to be able to pronounce all of them. Okay. So this is from Kathy and she says, after taking antibiotics for UTI, I developed a severe bacterial infection treated in the ER room due to rash, severe dehydration, headache, and abdominal pain. I'm slowly rebuilding my gut bacteria with a whole food plant exclusive SOS free diet. I'm also taking a probiotic for two months to supplement my high fiber diet. What are your thoughts on a short course of probiotics and should they be taken on an empty or full stomach? And is fermented food a better choice rather than a high quality, fresh refrigerated fermented food? Hmm. So I have, I mean, this is a great question in terms of, you know, how do you replenish your gut after some um, serious antibiotics? And so 
talk about the there's probiotics and then there's prebiotics. Prebiotics meaning the food the bacteria wants to eat. So you give them the good food. So you give them fiber. So you've you've really answered the question in the question is is that maximizing this fiber uh, uh, soluble fibers uh, in particular have a big uh, uh, proponent of uh, microbiome health is soluble fibers. Um, so, so you you want to you want to give the bacteria what they uh, eat. Now, there there might be some sort of um, traditionally people would try to do probiotics in this uh, in this instance. Uh, however, you know I'm trying to push people towards the fiber now. But if you want to compare probiotic pills versus uh, uh, probiotic foods like kimchi and kombucha and things like this. I, I believe that by the numbers, the actual food products, food probiotic fermented foods like sauerkraut and kimchi have higher colony numbers than the pills themselves. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in this and I would be um, not too surprised if I was wrong. Someone needs to uh, chat GPT this one for me, but uh, <laughs> but I believe that the foodstuffs like kimchi and sauerkraut have higher probiotic um, activity. And because they're uh, attached to the fiber in the food, that more of it makes it through the, uh, the gut down to the intestinal tract, uh, down to the colon uh, to help improve the microbiome. So I'm not a huge proponent of the probiotic pills just because yeah, you know, there's the refrigeration aspect and there's just the expense aspect, honestly. I mean, things things get really expensive if you're paying $70 a month for a probiotic and this kind of thing. So I've always been told that it's kind of like a drop in a pool. And the concept is that the, oh, there's a billion colonies, but there's like a gazillion billion in the, um, in the pool, so to speak. So I would recommend eating the whole food, uh, fermented whole food and uh high fiber diet. Thank you. Uh, this is from Marianne. What do you think of Satan or Satana? Not, not the, Satan. Not, is not that, what do you Satan? think of Satan? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Satan. Okay. Well, I believe that Satan is wheat gluten. And so if you have a gluten uh, intolerance, then it, it could really uh, trigger you. Uh, but uh, wheat seitan is, I mean, seitan is used a lot in uh, fake meats and cheese things like, you know, Rubens and, um, and it's a, it's a really a high calorie food. It's a high calorie food, but it's a great kind of substitute when you're, when you are uh, transitioning and if you, but it tends to be one of those sort of uh, treat type foods. I, I, I think about it like that. So it's really high calorie density. Um, but um, yeah, you'll, you'll see seitan used in, uh, when you go to the vegan restaurants and various, uh, transition or fake, fake meats. And, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's got its place, uh, for, for transition foods, but in, in general, it's kind of rich. So you want to limit it. Thanks. Here's a question we haven't gotten on the show before from Lynn, who's 64. And it's about how to get rid of yeast or fungus growth in the belly button permanently. She eats a whole food plant-based diet low fat and yearly labs look normal, except 2.8 WBC, which she's read is common in healthy eaters, LDL hundred, um, which surprised her because of the way she eats. She uses a fungal cream, um, like the one you would buy for athlete's foot once a week in her belly button to keep it under control, but it never goes away. Great, well, I, once again, you've answered your own question. 
fungal cream can be helpful to kind of beat it down. And um, fungus uh, on the outside of our body is always going to be present. It's uh, just the the level and the extent at which it's present is there. So um, there should be no assumption that you can obliterate uh, funguses from your life. Uh, we just kind of live in harmony with them. But if they're constantly causing you irritation, you have to figure out, you have to adjust and adapt and figure out ways to try to avoid it. And so it sounds like you're you're doing a pretty good job with the once a week once a week treatment, um, but you got to think about the ways that would make the fungus prosper, and that's you know dark, warm, wet places, and so um, keeping it dry. Uh, maybe when you shower, making sure that uh, the belly button is dry, um, actively you know kind of actively dry it. You want to avoid kind of irritant you know irritating it and rubbing it, uh, creating sort of almost like skin debris. Uh, and uh, I, I would maybe caution it. Sometimes some people use like apple cider vinegar and stuff in areas uh, because of the slight acidic uh, way to kind of keep the, the fungus down. But I would be worried a little bit in the belly button that if any of the um, uh, apple cider vinegar was kind of trapped in that area, that it would be um, potentially irritating. So I, I think that you're doing the right thing. So remember, dark, warm, and wet. So if you can manage those types of, um, you know, keeping it dry, maybe you know, showing your midriff a little bit, walking around outside, um, and 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 so you have the sun and keeping it dry and that kind of thing. But once a week, antifungal is a reasonable option. Would this be something? Because we have a, a, a dermatologist, plant-based Jessica Krant, that comes on with someone. Would this be something like if she were going to go to a doctor, that that would be the doctor to go to for this? That that sounds kind of like. I mean, yes, the answer is yes. A dermatologist should be able to answer these kind of questions, but it's kind of like a primary care thing. People will get um, in skin folds and, and that kind of thing. It can be uh, very. Uh, it's multifactorial. It could be a yeast. It could be bacteria. You can do powders and drying, drying. Um, so yeah, you can see a dermatologist, but it's it's really a trial and error kind of thing, working with with uh, trying to do things you can to kind of prevent it. Uh, but it's almost like beating back the grass. It's it's something that would just keep popping up all the time. I wonder if she's an innie or an outie, because if she was an outie, maybe she wouldn't have it. Right, right. Probably not. Yeah. Well, you can't change your belly button probably. Well, maybe you can these days. This is from Denise, and she wants to know if you can, um, let's see, uh, if there are foods or supplements to take to lower a mildly elevated PSA count, and could statins have contributed to the increase in PSA? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I haven't heard that statins increase PSA. Uh, one of the things that we're told to uh, in medical school about uh, PSA testing is don't do things like a prostate exam right before a PSA draw, because just the mechanical action of sort of um, irritating, I guess, the prostate or manipulating the prostate, uh, you can have, you can theoretically increase the prostate specific antigen in the blood. So there are things like motorcycle riding or, uh, you know, heavy exercise or things like that, uh, that might somehow mechanically sort of stimulate or vibrate the, the prostate uh, to potentially increase the um, blood levels. Prostate specific antigen is 
has really fallen out of favor in terms of uh, the US Preventative Task Force had taken it down and given it a very low rating in terms of it used to be the primary way that we did prostate screening for prostate cancer. But because of the high false positive rates, um, men, men were getting lots of prostate biopsies and getting procedures from early caught cancers that were slow growing. Uh, and finally, when it was compared against people who didn't have this PSA screening, they had similar outcomes. So prostate-specific antigen is something that you really should have a, a, a good talk with your doctor about because there's a potential that it's, a, it's, it's causing... Um, you have to worry about uh, catching early cancer that may not have harmed you. Uh, so, but you can see how, how contentious this could be. So if you've already tested and you have mildly elevated PSA, then you know the prostate and prostate cancer is kind of in the crosshairs and it can feel uh, like dangerous to ignore this kind of thing. So in this situation, sometimes I will do a prostate MRI uh, as sort of a non- um, no radiation, non-invasive, almost biopsy in a way. It's not a biopsy, but it could kind of give you some really fine detail about uh, what's going on in the prostate. Thank you. Well, you thank you for going over. You got through all the previously submitted questions. Maybe we could take just one from the chat and then call it a day. All right, the lucky uh, chat. Uh, I know. Well, it's Marley. And by the way, guys, I appreciate if you watch this, but if you watch on Facebook or Twitter, I don't see your comments. So if you really want to get a chance to even get your questions answered, you got to watch on YouTube. So thanks for understanding. Marley says, I wonder what Dr. Harrington thinks of avoiding beans, peas, and lentils to help with osteoporosis. Hmm. Well, this might be, well, first off, I'm very pro bean, peas, and, and, and lentils. Uh, if I was stuck on a desert island and I could only pick one food, it would be lentils. So oh, yeah, really, uh, I pick sweet potatoes. <laughs> so, I just I love lentils. Uh, they're very. I feel really satisfied with them all day long. But th that's the debate. The debate is like, gosh, they're kind of a high protein food, and uh, there's the concept of the acid base balance. Now, animal products are highly acidic uh, in terms of what it does to the blood. Uh, they call it the PROW score. The I believe that's the pre-renal acid load. Probably messing that up, but it's a, it's a renal acid load, a potential renal acid load, uh, PROW score. And foods that are uh, high in protein and low in in uh, things like potassium will have a high PROW score, and they're uh, acidic versus alkaline alkaline is I, things that alkalize the urine, and uh, so. You want to you want to be eating an alkaline diet, and uh, and so of the plant foods, the things that uh, pea, the things that are high protein, those are the most acidic uh, in the in the plant world, I guess you could say. But compared to the animal products, it's so small. That's just a mild mild amount. Uh, so I, I I tell people that they're unless you're kind of somehow allergic to it that I'm, I'm pro bean, pro lentil, pro peas, stuff like that. Was that the kind of question? Was that, did I? Yeah, well, the question was, is do you think avoiding them or limiting them could help with osteoporosis? I don't understand the connection, but maybe Okay, you. so the connection is the idea that um, the more acidic that your, your, your diet is, the more potential calcium excretion that you get uh, from the buffering uh, through, through the urine. 
And so uh, I don't think that, I, I think that maintaining a, a diet that's rich in nutrients and you, that allows you to have um, good exercise and this kind of thing, because for osteoporosis, the um, concern, is the, the, it used to be calcium, vitamin D and exercise, but I turn it around, exercise, vitamin D and calcium. Uh, and then eating a diet that's an alkalizing diet. So she's worried that maybe these uh, peas or lentils are going to make her diet slightly less alkalizing. And um, I wouldn't worry about that. I wouldn't worry about that. I would focus on the exercise. Uh, obviously, eating a vegan diet is going to have your, um, your, your overall diet uh, alkalizing and not acidic. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Harrington. You're a wealth of information. And I, I was posting in the chat, doesn't he look like Tom Cruise? And the comments were, no, he's better looking. Oh, oh Tom Cruise, down with Tom Cruise, up with Dr. Harrington. All right. <laughs> just, just because this question just came in, but it's based on what you talked about from Annette. Where do you suggest we download chat GBT from? Okay. So um, you can, if you're using your phone, if you, and if you kind of walk around and you mostly do it on your phone, you can go to the app store and go to um, the Apple app store or the you know, Android app store and download chat GPT. But uh, if you're on the computer, just go to openai.com and open AI and you can utilize chat GPT there. Uh, but it's also being added natively into Bing uh, chat, uh, the Bing search, uh, as well as Edge, the Edge browser. That's the Google equivalent of Chrome. So, and then Google Chrome in their search, they are starting their own generative AI called Bard. So these things are going to be working their way into all of our applications. And so, uh, but I do think ChatGPT is a lot of fun because it does have these plug-in applications that you can use. So one of the things I didn't talk about was the idea that you can use it to summarize a YouTube video. So you could go once this video gets posted, it's a, it was a long, it was a long session. You could go to ChatGPT, hook it up to a um, to one of the plugins called VoxScript, VoxScript, and then you say ChatGPT summarize this YouTube, and you give it the YouTube, you give it the URL, the web address. And as long as you have the Vox script um, plugin uh, uh, checked, it will it will just it will summarize it for you. Thank you, Dr. Harrington. This was a lot of fun. All right, thank you, Chef AJ. It's always a pleasure. I'm super humbled by being on your show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so glad you do this, and thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guests for Food Addiction Friday are Dr. Joan Iflin interviewing Dr. Alan Goldhammer. And we might start a little early because they might want to go over and I've got to catch a plane. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.